This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The answer to all of the stuff, the leaks, everything else, is just give Ukraine what it needs to win. Period. End of story. It's worth every penny, and it's saving Ukrainian lives. So let's just get that calculation better and get it done. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. There has been a lot of news about Russia and the war in Ukraine in the last few weeks, from the recent revelation that intelligence documents have been leaked to the Wall Street Journal reporter who's being wrongfully detained in Russia. So with everything that's going on, we're going to talk to my good friend Molly McHugh about these developments and how they can shape the war. Molly is a writer and researcher, as most of you know, of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, and other publications. And she's the lead author of a newsletter called GreatPower.us. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and one of the only people I've ever been to a war zone with. Hi, Molly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hello. Welcome back. How are you doing? Uh, Good. Yeah? I guess. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We have a really great question from a listener named Keith. He writes, what is the difference between 2008, when Russia invaded Georgia, and also the 2014 annexation of Crimea? Why didn't we support Ukraine and Georgia more then? What was different back then and what has changed now? Now, I will will preface your answer um, just by saying, uh, especially as it relates to Georgia, I think there's a lot that... um, we need to um, remind people about about that period, about that time. You have um, deep ties there. You worked there, uh, and and I think um, what happened in Georgia, I think, is really important to understanding where we are now, and is often criminally left out of the conversation and narrative about Ukraine today. So, um, is that? Yeah. All fair and absolutely. True. And thank okay. you, Keith, yes. for, thank for you, the Keith, question. For, for a really, really excellent <laughs> Which question. Which is exactly yeah. the right question yes. all the time. Yeah. I mean, some of us teach whole courses about this question, <laughs> basically. But um, you know, it's it's exactly the right question. And I think Where do you begin? Cynically looking back yeah. from the vantage point we now sit in, it's much easier to be a finger waggler. But um, you know, nobody was willing to put Georgia in the same spectrum of things as Crimea until like 2016 almost like it was just like 
if you if you look at the timeline of so let's just be clear what happened in georgia so, okay in- august 2008 russia invaded georgia five-day war ceasefire negotiated war ends um in the most simplistic form uh or earlier that spring um there had been a uh, nato summit uh, the vague pledge that ukraine and georgia will join nato period as a statement made with absolutely no details attached to that so in traditional form there's a map membership action plan given to countries yeah george um, w bush basically signaled yes. like this is the pl- this is the route we're taking this is a word this is the roadmap the bush administration had been humongous advocates of nato expansion had gotten the baltic states into nato had finished sort of these uh you know eastern european post soviet closer waves of expansion into nato understood why this was important, really, really pushed the more reluctant Western European allies to get a lot of this work done um, in smart, smart ways, um, and insisted, uh, especially because Bush had a very unique view, personally, of Georgia and Ukraine, because the Rose Revolution happened in 2003 on his watch, uh, the Orange Revolution uh, happened in 2004 on his watch. These were the two, quote-unquote, color revolutions that overthrew the lagging post-Soviet democratic quote-unquote structures in Georgia and Ukraine and brought in more Western-leaning, democracy-focused, reform-oriented governments that were uh, of similar models, closely aligned at times. Um, But, you know, Bush, there were... uh, Georgia and Ukraine and a few other countries in the world that had these sort of democratic upsurges during his presidency, Bush felt very personally invested in them. Liberia, I think Nicaragua was one of them, but like, no, not Nicaragua. There was something Latin that he was really into too. But like, he had these countries where there had been these big changes when he was president that he felt very personally invested in. Uh, And Georgia and Ukraine were two of them. Um, They both aspired then to be in NATO, um, both bordered... NATO nations, <laughs> um, uh, Georgia on its Turkish border in the south. Uh, obviously, Georgia's a little further away on the other side of the Black Sea. Uh, and then Ukraine on the other side of the Black Sea borders uh, the Baltic states, Poland. Um, but they expressed their desire to be in NATO. Bush really supported this. Um, m- many Western European allies were very reluctant, uh, especially the French and the Germans, on this Um but Bush felt it very important to make this statement of, no, they're going to be in someday, because that was what he could get done then. It was very much a someday. It was a, it, it, without the someday, right. but the non-specificity made it a someday. Right. And so the statement was made by NATO in spring of 2008. And pretty much the next minute, Russia starts preparing for the invasion of Georgia, sort of understanding we have to change the possibility that this can actually happen uh, in uh, in very visual terms. Mm-hmm. So all through the summer, and this is after, of course, so Putin comes to power 2000. There's this internal period of regaining control of all the shit that ran wild in the early 2000s and the Yeltsin years, uh, or in the, early, in the 90s and the Yeltsin years. Putin takes over in 2000. Those sort of first four or five years are about internal control. Getting the oligarchs in line, mm-hmm. getting the services back in line, uh, rebuilding structures of internal power, recentralizing things away from federalization back to the center. Putin does all this stuff. And then sort of <laughs> is ready for the next phase. Uh, and they start being more open. They start communicating more openly in public speeches. 
um, about what's going to happen. In uh, February 2007, Putin gives his famous Munich Security Council or Munich Security Conference speech, which is basically like, we're done being shat on by you, the West. It was a super hostile speech. Like, and everybody was sort of like, what just happened? But he gives this very hostile speech. Yeah. We're back. We're done being crapped on by you. We're going to assert our rights as a non-oppressed whatever. And it was sort of surprising to everyone who felt they had been helping Russia all of this time to reestablish itself in the post-Cold War period. Um, and then uh, in uh, the spring of that year, you have maybe getting the timeline wrong, but right after the speech essentially is the paired events in Estonia, the cyber attack on the Estonian government slash system writ large and the, uh, what became known as the bronze Knight riots, the bronze soldier riots, um, which was sort of a kinetic pairing to the, the online attacks, mm. but it was made to create chaos in Estonia uh, in different ways. But this was kind of this, this is symbol, all perpetrated by Russia. Yeah, all this is Russian, yeah. Russian yeah. done. And this, it was made to send this signal of, we're not fucking around anymore. There's a different Russia you're going to have to deal with. Suck on it. And we didn't really get the symbol. <laughs> didn't really get the message because everybody was still in like, oh, but we can make lots of money in Russia mode. Um, and I think we get into 2008. There's more of this churn and sort of activity uh, again, under the cover of there's a military exercise coming. Russia spends all this time after the summit, the statement of Russia or, or Georgia, Ukraine will join NATO statement. Right. Um, they spend all this time and effort rebuilding rail lines to Georgia, moving troops toward Georgia, <laughs> getting troops, ready yeah. to invade Georgia, pretending it's a military exercise. Yeah. And then literally during the opening ceremonies of the Beijing Olympics in 2008, while all the world leaders are sitting in the stands with their little flags and, and whatever they were drinking or whatever, uh, Russia invades, begins the invasion of Georgia, uh, which the Georgians knew were coming, which they had been warning was coming, which their Baltic allies had warned was coming, uh, which the Ukrainians warned was coming, which the Poles warned were coming. Everybody was like, nah, nah, the Russians aren't stupid. They're not going to do that. Um, and there's literally, you can still find the footage of Bush sitting in the stands in the stadium in Beijing and some advisor like leaning over his shoulder, like just and he's like looking at what, you know? And it was, I mean, total missed warnings, total misinterpretation of Russian intent, total misinterpretation of what they would do. Um, on our part that everybody admits and, yeah. and like there's this fantastic um, general Michael Hayden, who was then the director yep. of the CIA. Also friend of politicology. Also friend of politicology, great dude, super smart guy. He ha he tells this very now <laughs> in a declassified sense <laughs> anecdote of, you know, he's sitting in his office uh, when this happens and like Bush calls him on the phone from Beijing and is like, uh, you know, Russia just invaded Georgia. Can we get a briefing on whatever fucking shit is happening? And Hayden's like, sure, sure. And like hangs up the phone and he like calls out to his front office and is like, do we have Georgia experts in the building? Can we get them up here? But the fact that we hadn't even like, like we were so not paying attention to this in the sense that nobody was even sure who was in charge of watching the things was like, oh, Jesus Christ. But um, it's a great story. Uh, but he tells the story very openly now. Um, but we weren't, we were not expecting this to happen. And um, uh, again, it was in, if you read back through 
one of the first things WikiLeaks helpfully dumped online was the like 700 page document dump of cables from the U.S. Embassy uh, to the State Department, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Tbilisi uh, from the capital of Georgia uh, back to the State Department during the war. And they're fascinating because you really get the perspective of um, this was not, I think now people sort of look back on it and they're like, oh, it was this little thing. It was just a little bit of fighting. It wasn't a real thing. Um, This was a full war. Russia was bombing apartment buildings, you know, blowing up uh, targeting civilian infrastructure, things like hospitals and schools. What does that sound like? Bridges, uh, you know, electricity infrastructure. Um, they were doing things like starting forest fires. Georgia is a, a very diverse ecosystem in the different parts of the country. Ron was there, a beautiful, wonderful country. Um, but there's many different regions. Um, part of it is very wooded. But the Russians were like starting forest fires, uh, huge forest fires, just because why not? Like, why not create more chaos? And, um, the Ukrainians and the Turks, who are obviously in the smoke fallout zone of forest fires of Georgia, were like, hey, can we just come in and put out the fires like we've got the big planes that put out fires? You know, can we just come in and put out the fires? And the Russians were like, no, do that and we'll shoot down your fucking plane. So, like, they were totally trying to destroy mm-hmm. in a serious way the infrastructure of Georgia. Um, the goal was to topple... Um, the government of President Saakashvili, the leader of the orange, one of the leaders of the orange revolution or of the Rose Revolution in 2003, uh, who had been sort of a, you know, democracy darling of the U.S. He'd been sort of cleaning up corruption and like he was elected on a wave of like cleaning up corruption, right? Elected on the we need to not be a failed state platform right. uh, had been lauded as cleaning up corruption. One of the things they famously did was, um, you know, fire the entire traffic police force in one day and rebuild it from scratch to start Get with non-corrupt police. Yeah. Um, it was really a success story. The Georgians who did this work did the same work in Ukraine uh, after 2014. Oh. Um, so, like, the the skill sets of Georgians who have done this work, yeah. there are many Georgians in Ukraine working in the government, uh, adjacent to the government, um, having now been chased out of Georgia, which is a different story uh, with its current oligarchic-led government. But um, uh, the, I mean, this was a real serious attempt by Russia to topple the government of President Saakashvili. To take to, back a former Soviet state. To disrupt the Western yeah. hmm. course of the country, which again was not some issue of debate. Like Georgians were wildly supportive of integration into Europe and into NATO, more so after the war as typically happens. Um, uh, This was public sentiment that this is where Georgia belonged, that it is a European nation that belongs with its European uh, brothers. Um, And it remains a very public sentiment despite hiccups and uh, getting off course in the the last bit of time. But um, this was a real attempt to do that. Russia got within... I think it's 40 kilometers of the capital before their troops kind of had to go back um, and the ceasefire was negotiated. It was not great for them. I mean, this is, again, like a whole course that I teach, but um, they got way ahead of their supply lines. They were not ready to do this. It was a big wake up call for them that their post-Soviet military reform had, in fact, been garbage. But that whole period then after. So there was a ceasefire negotiated. uh, The war ends. Uh, Saakashvili does not fall, um, partially because the United States and other countries gave a tremendous amount of economic support to Georgia to keep the country from collapsing after the war, to keep the economic disruption from having a real impact um, on the country. 
Um, and this was critical to allow it to continue on and not fall to chaos. Um, uh, but, the, the, but we didn't arm the Georgians to fight back. We well, didn't. it's even stupider than that. So the Georgians wanting to be in NATO were trying to be good security contributors. They had uh, the best Georgian troops were in Iraq when the war started because they were fighting with us. And so we had to sort of airlift them back. They get back on day three or whatever, you know, but it was not. I mean, the Georgians always had troops in Iraq and Afghanistan um, because as NATO partners, because they really wanted to make the point, no, we're serious. Like, we want to help you. Ukrainians were the same. Like, we're in this. We're here. We're helping. We're taking the assignments nobody else wants. We're in Helmand province in Afghanistan. You know, we're taking the hard assignments in Iraq. Um, uh, and, but it was this awkward period, August 2008, obviously, end of the Bush administration, um, very strange election between Obama and McCain. Uh, McCain, a huge traditional supporter of new NATO countries, NATO aspirants, but also Georgia and Ukraine specifically, who was very outspoken about the war and the need to stand up against Russia. Obama on vacation in Hawaii when this happened, very slow response from the campaign. Uh, it really inflamed doubts about maybe he's not ready for national security. Briefly, very briefly, he dipped below McCain in the polls for the only time, essentially, in the entire election cycle. Um, but then the economy collapsed, and that was the deciding factor, obviously. But um, uh, so it had this strange, it it had this strange thing here, where the Bush administration, in a way you can understand, in a way we all regretted and was hoping they, we were hoping they would be more aggressive and forward leaning. Traditionally, outgoing administrations don't stick the next administration with a major policy decision that they're gonna have to deal with. And so the decision was, we're gonna get this initial support package done, this billion dollar economic support package for Georgia, you know, helping mitigate the immediate impact of the war. Like we're gonna do this, but there's a lot of other things that need to be decided about Georgia that the next administration is gonna have to take on. And uh, because of this strange, the strange sort of conception of this of the war and the Georgians, um, and because of the political nature of some of this <laughs> during the campaign, the Obama people not really inclined to listen to the Georgian side of the story at all. They viewed this as a McCain project. Uh, some of McCain's political advisors had been advisors to the Georgian government as well in the past. Um, so there was this like really not like there was no love. There was no love there. And it took a while to overcome that. Uh, I worked with the Georgian government in this period. Um, it took a lot of work to like rebuild the direct connections between the administrations in ways that were obviously important and critical because of this like bad news bears vibe. <laughs> um, but also keep in mind, this was the main, the headline policy of the Obama administration was the reset. So that meant you're prioritizing the relationship with Moscow over all of these other things. There's still tremendous fallout from this that is not addressed and we don't discuss. And certainly most of the Obama people do not discuss it in a reflective From the failed ways. reset policy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there were real costs to that, including we got to 2014 and Russia invaded Crimea. And so Keith, your question very apt, which is yeah. why didn't we do anything? Like, why didn't we do anything after Georgia? The question was really, well, shit, what do we do? And I was not in the boat of shit, what do we do? It was obvious to me what we do, which should have been helping Georgia figure out how to defend itself, making clear to Russia that they are not the regional, you know, hegemon, that they don't have 
a sphere of interest where they get to fuck around with other people and their decisions to be democratic nations, their right. decisions of what alliances they want to join, uh, all of these types of things. Um, instead, we were vague and sort of absent in this period, and it was not helpful. And like, yes, the U.S. has always been in Georgia supportive of Georgian reform, supportive of Georgian military training, all these other things. But in this period after the war, uh, there was there's always U.S. Marines in Georgia that are uh, a, part of a training facility uh, because we were training Georgians to do things like deploy to Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but in that period after the war, we would only talk to them about that stuff. Mm. <laughs> and it was like, we are training you for deployment. We will not discuss with you nor train you for national defense, which is crazy wow. if you think about it. Like, we don't give a shit if you can defend your own borders just if you can go to Afghanistan and wow. Iraq. And it got so dumb that's at some point. It's really bad. Really it got dumb. so dumb during some phase of this that, like, the Georgians, because we had sort of made it clear that everyone should be cautious. We fell into this trap of the narrative that the Russians were building after the war, which was the war was the Georgians' fault. They like were provoked into taking the bait and fighting this war as if the Russians weren't going to invade anyway with 120,000 troops sitting yeah. on the border. But like the narrative that the Russians advanced remains entrenched in how we talk about the Georgian war. That the Rus that the Georgians fell into the trap, that it was their fault, that you know, they were provoked stupidly, whatever. None of this is true. And I think in retrospect, you can understand how really yeah. dumb this analysis is. But because there was this belief in the reset period that we had to sort of support this idea of the war, um, there was a de facto arms ban on things to Georgia. So it was very difficult for them to acquire stuff. And it got so dumb, it was to the point where they couldn't get spare parts for their rifles uh. to do things like deploy to Afghanistan. Uh, we, they would have to go to Afghanistan and then we would give them stuff there. It was just, it was uh. completely silly. But this was the kind of, underneath the giant headline of the reset policy, there were 40 million tiny decisions like this made to appease Moscow, to please Moscow, to take an issue off the table with Moscow while we talked with them about green energy and tech cooperation and whatever other shit we thought was going to solve all our problems with Moscow. And for us, this is done and we're not talking about it anymore. But for every single ally we fucked over in that period by making these decisions that were Moscow-centric, they're not done with it. Yeah, <laughs> and like it's rightly had, so. And it's had it's real costs for national security for some of these countries, for things like air defense, where we like pulled, you know, we were supposed to be doing these advanced artillery batteries in Romania and Poland. We decided not to do them during the reset. We have subsequently had to do them, but we're like behind and how we're doing all these things for the alliance. I mean, there were real costs to this policy that have not been fully evaluated particularly in the aspect of how Russia built the trap of engagement that we believed in. And there are still people to this day, like Mike McFall, for example, who believe Medvedev was a real, like, moderate option for Russia, and he was a smart guy, and if only we could empower then-President Medvedev, who was holding the chair while Putin had to fake support for the constitutional system of not being president at that moment, uh, you know, there was this belief in the Obama administration that you could support a moderate choice in Russia and maybe that would empower him against Putin as if he was not a Putin thing. And it was bananas. Um, but they believed it and still believe it and still defend it. And like the amount of technology we transferred to Russia in that period <laughs> is so, now being used against us. <laughs> so this wow. is all great. And like, 
again, I understand where it came from. I know we, but like, in the same way we as a nation are now able to be more critical of things like, wow, how did the Germans shut down their entire nuclear power industry and become dependent on Russia gas and this Nord Stream 2 thing? Like, that was a really yeah. dumb decision over 30 years, right? Or, or, I mean, or the Iraq war, right? <laughs> we have been very reflective about that, to say the least. And it seems right. to me there's But not especially been... on the Russian influence side, we're very able to look at other countries yeah. and say, wow, that was a really bad decision. But we haven't had that same come to Jesus with ourselves. And... Especially in the sense that these were not, you know, badly written Netflix series of Russian influence in the U.S. system where some guy was an evil, ideologically aligned pro-Russian guy. No, they were exploiting our goodwill and our nature of wanting to believe places want to be better, want democratic change, like, and understanding how that worked in our system and how it was exploited and how we weakened ourselves because of it is just super critical. It is also just very, very Russian. It it's, is. Oh, to, it's... To, to take the thing that we hold most dear, thing. our values, <laughs> and weaponize them against us. Uh, so the thing with so... 2008 that's so fascinating yeah. is sometimes now we look at the military piece of it. There was this Russian invasion. We probably should have paid more attention. But we don't pay attention to the political warfare side, which is all the other things right, right. that Russia does which that is fuck with us. what this was, yeah. Yeah, and... And that, I think, is still a big weakness. So why did we decide not to do anything? Because it was hard to look at what just happened in Georgia, which was a country with a huge military crossing the border to crush the government of a neighboring country while slaughtering civilians and causing mayhem. Like, nobody wanted to have to deal with that. It was like, oh, shit. Like, what is that? Like, we haven't seen that in a while. Like, it's not in Europe. Like, we haven't seen that. And let's just leave it alone. It didn't happen. And so it was sort of excused as this incursion, as this little thing. The Georgians did it. Oh, if only they hadn't fallen for their whatever. And then everybody wanted it to be the anomaly and not the beginning of the arc. And so we engaged Russia. We figured, once again, someone looked at the binder and thought, oh, if only we explained to them, they should be in the West and it will all be better. Um, and basically, we gave them the space uh, during that, that six-year, eight-year period to revamp, rearm, sharpen their tools of political warfare, sharpen how their influence worked in our systems, sharpen their military reform, build these new weapons, do all these other things, build RT and Sputnik and all these things that now uh, they're, they're massive influence networks uh, in the information domain, figure out how social media worked. We gave them this period of time to get to it better. Regroup. And, and guess, yeah. Crimea was the lesson they learned. And the invasion so, of Eastern Ukraine was the next phase of that. So... That this takes us so that was 2008 mm -hmm. at the at the transition point, uh, yeah. right? As Obama's coming into office, and now this takes us up to 2014 when uh, Putin invades Crimea, takes the Crimean Peninsula. Which I think I said this one of the first conversations that we had. People should actually, if you haven't yet, and if you really don't know the geography of. Ukraine, you need to just pull Crimea up on a map and understand how strategically important it is. Super important. Because of the shipping lines and the, the port of Odessa, which is uh, essentially the lifeblood of Ukraine's economy. And also, by the way, um, Africa's grain. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's, a, that's a story for another time. Um, uh, not at all unrelated, but um, in t this is 2014 now. Yeah. Uh, so presumably we 
have learned our lesson with Georgia. We understand now that we've been played by Putin. And but we didn't. I know, right. Thing. So what happened then as Putin takes Crimea, again, invading a neighboring state uh, under false pretenses, seizes the land, and we do what? So there were lessons learned okay. uh, of Georgia applied, right? And one of the key lessons was... One, we have to get the information war right. They lost in Georgia during the war because there was a very capable team of Georgians and Estonians who were pushing back on the narrative that Russia was trying to sell, that the Georgians had started this war. And that made the space for the ceasefire. And I think we should just be very clear about that. Like, had the Russian information campaign, which was then very sloppy, won, there would have been a very different outcome to this. Um, But much like in Crimea and everything after, like the first deployment into Georgia was journalists, not soldiers. So I think we should just be very clear about who these people are. So, um, but so Sochi Olympics in 2014, uh, in February 2014, uh, this great pinnacle of Putin power that he had built. Sochi was this, I mean, and, and also not d- disconnected from Georgia. Sochi is on the Black Sea coast, uh, Russia's Black Sea coast. Uh, so kind of between the Ukrainian Black Sea coast and the Georgian Black Sea coast. But a big piece of that Georgian Black Sea coast is Abkhazia, which is a, a region of Georgia occupied by uh, Russia, declared as independent. Um, but, Even today. But the Sochi Olympics largely constructed out of Abkhazia. So they were like using the occupation as this strange tool of these Olympics, which was on purpose. But um, the everybody hoped this was clearly important to Putin. They spent gazillions of dollars doing this totally misguided Winter Olympics in a subtropical <laughs> climate in Sochi. They had to refrigerate the snow, like totally stupid. So but Soviet. It's also stupid. <laughs> but um, everybody knew this was a big thing for Putin. There was this perceived opening in advance of the Olympics because he was hoping for good coverage and positive news and all the world leaders coming and played, praising him and his strange wonderland that he has built in Sochi. It's very important to him. He does a lot of official things there. Um, one of the things that happened in this pre-Sochi period was finally the release of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who had been a one of the first detained sort of dissident slash oligarchs. Um, uh, he was finally let out and allowed to leave Russia. Um, so there was this perceived opening in that time period. Russia built this narrative of, well, you know, we're doing these Olympics right here next to the Caucasus, like the North Caucasus, where there's all these terrorists. There's all these terrorists. Like, yeah. did we did we mention there's jihadis all over the North Caucasus? So they built this cooperative environment of insurance of, of uh, intelligence sharing in advance of Sochi, um, uh, because you want to protect your athletes from terroristic threats coming here to Russia. Um, and used all of this as cover for moving troops into position to seize Crimea right after the Olympics. So the November 2013 um, Maidan protests, also the end of the Saakashvili president in, in presidency in Georgia, uh, when he left Georgia, I should note. Um, but Maidan protests start in Ukraine. Uh, then President Yanukovych had uh, made the decision to not sign... Um, a trade and integration deal with Europe um, against what the people of the country wanted. So there's these huge pro-European protests that start. Hugely in, popular, right? I mean, I mean the, so it was... They wanted to be integrated yeah, yeah, with yeah. Europe. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was... And not signing that deal, which was this 
trade deal that would have opened the economy and would have been a tremendous benefit to the country, yeah. even if you hated Europe, like right. tremendous benefit to everyone in the country. Um, Yanukovych stalled as long as he could, finally was said, I'm not- a Russian guy. I mean, was a, a, a Russian oligarch who was yeah. president of uh, Ukraine. There's complicated stuff yeah. in Ukraine after the Orange yeah. Revolution, obviously, yeah. but yeah. then had been returned to the presidency with the help of guys like Paul Manafort, I would note. Uh, uh, we should never forget huh. the role of American political consultants in some of this work. And yeah. um, uh, But he, he decides finally, no, 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 I'm not signing. We're not signing the deal. Um, so in the same way that Medvedev, President Medvedev at the time in 2011, openly stated we invaded Georgia because we needed to keep them out of NATO. And if we hadn't, Ukraine and, or, and Georgia would be in NATO now. Um, the Ukraine invasion was about, it was about making the, the similar EU statement. Like we can, we get to decide who gets to be in Europe and not. And so Maidan protests start in we, November. Russia. Yeah, we Russia. Right. And so Maidan protests start in 2013. Uh, they continue through the whole winter, this very poetic burning square thing that many of us are familiar with now. Um, of the Euromaidan protests. Go um, Google. If you're not familiar with what this looks like, go Google Maidan protests. And there yeah. are many good documentaries made, yes. including Winter on Fire, uh, a few others. Uh, that just, I mean, this was truly a um, citizens' uprising that had been from prepared movements for some time. I mean, people had been waiting for the moment to make this point for some time, but truly a... a, a a sort of a case study of popular uprising that is worth looking at whether you support or think it's yeah. a bad idea. Yeah. Um, really a beautiful thing. But that continues until February. Um, finally, there's this moment of truth where uh, Yanukovych is deposed by the parliament. Uh, he's done stupid things in the interim. Finally deposed by the parliament. He flees the country literally like the next day the quote-unquote green men, so these soldiers who were wearing uniforms with no insignias, pop up at all the critical sites in Crimea and sort of seize the peninsula um, within a week, basically, um, without... And this is right after the really Sochi Olympics. And it's it's right after... The, it's days after the Sochi right. Olympics concludes. And um, so there was this... If you look back at it now, like now it's all like, oh, it's the green men. But at the time the coverage of this was so strange. And I remember being, I think it was in Ireland at the time uh, doing some stuff and the news coverage was like, who are these strange mercenaries? Right. I remember who, this. See, yeah. We do not we don't know, know yet. We don't know who's doing this. And everybody, like all of us were like, I mean, it's obviously, they're like, why are we pretending it's not the Russians? Everybody knew it was the Russians, but like, oh, we don't know yeah. what's happening. So it was this dumb period of, of make-believe, but the make-believe really worked in Russia's advantage. Yeah. And since... This was in this period where Yanukovych had been deposed or, or was being deposed, but still kind of in charge. Like the order given was for the Ukrainian soldiers who were in Crimea to do nothing. And so Russia was able to seize. So he gave that order. Yes. Uh, so okay. the Russians were able to seize the peninsula with absolutely no resistance, despite the fact that in many cases they actually weren't armed for it. And the Ukrainians who were there were armed. We're told but, to stand down. We're told to stand down and leave, and they did. And, I mean, again, lawfully following orders, right. this was right. what they had to do. Um, but they, I mean, again, having Yanukovych as this Russian tool in Ukraine right. is so critical to this At whole thing. Moment, yeah. But the Russians rely on this so much. Like, yeah. 
no shots fired, no resistance. Clearly, right. the Crimeans wanted to be with us. Right. It's all nonsense, but they lean on the story a lot and don't think it hasn't informed the Ukrainian resistance strategy of we will fucking shoot you for every inch of territory in our country now yeah. because we are not playing this right. game of there was no right. resistance. Um, it's been really sort of the underpinning to everything that has come after. But the Crimean thing, so literally within two weeks, Greenman, uh, Russia's holding a fake, or, or, you know, Crimea has a referendum to declare itself independent, quote unquote, Crimea has a referendum to declare itself independent, uh, and then applies to Russia to be annexed, and Russia annexes them, and on March 18th, Putin gives this big speech. And this is all like sham orchestrated right. by the Kremlin, essentially. Like, oh, I'm so right. sure you had an election within two days. Like, right. absolutely. That makes total yeah. sense. So all of this is, it's it's this very well-staged play. Right. But it worked extremely well, having learned the lessons Actually, of 2008. Kind of well, which very is, well played. Don't use your guys. Use guys with no labels because then there's no accountability. Right. It was an independent right. uprising, right. you know. right. right. Um, have the whole thing staged out. They had the whole thing done. And then, so they did this annexation and literally everybody's standing around like, well, fuck. Yeah. What the fuck? Now what? And in order to ensure that there could be no reevaluation of the annexation of Crimea, which is incredibly strategic, important for Russia in the Black Sea, in the Mediterranean and everything they're doing now in Africa and beyond, they needed this for their strategic deployment concept. Um... But in order to make sure this was not reevaluated in any right. respect, there was then the invasion of the territories in eastern Ukraine uh, with this quote unquote, it's local uprisings, you know, nonsense. Um, because then there was this hot war being fought. Uh, at the time, the Ukrainians called it an anti terrorist operation for reasons that are important politically. But. Um, uh, but there was this other war to focus on right. that became the thing we had to negotiate about, the thing we had to talk about. So, so Crimea, Crimea was, was just, just like, yeah, we don't have time. Yeah. We're not, it's not even... Yeah. And it was, again, a very smart strategic move. Yeah. Uh, and this really then, obviously, it was Obama's guy leaning yeah. over your shoulder in the yeah. stadium moment of like, shit, the fucking Russians have fucked me too. Yeah. Um, and the last years were more aggressive there were some sanctions issued against Russia, blah, blah, blah. But did we do enough? No. And so the reason, can I just go back yeah, yeah. To, to, to just to clarify um, Why we didn't for, do more? for me and for our listeners is how how significant a reason that we didn't do more is the fact that Russia had built this narrative going into Sochi Olympics that, oh, we're kind of opening up. And right, they, they had essentially bought a lot of fake goodwill. They, have ma- they had manufactured a lot of goodwill for themselves and so uh, right after the Sochi Olympics, you think maybe they're turning a page, maybe they're opening up, maybe 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 it's different now. And then Crimea happens. And so this sort of play that they had staged becomes borderline credible for a lot of people, maybe journalists too. And, uh, and so this has a lot to do with like the political will, right? Not like, we're not really sure... Uh, if this is an anomaly now, or if actually we've just been played this entire time. Yeah, I mean, erasing the two critical Georgian stories. One, the story of the war, which in 2014, no the one Fox was talking war, about. Right. No one was talking about the 2008 war. It was like, it never happened. And then in 20 um, in 2012, uh, this Russian oligarch, I mean, he's a Georgian, but he made all his money in Russia, uh, won the election against... Stalin was a Georgian. (laughs) Stalin was also a Georgian, yes. Uh, I mean, this guy is 
now very openly pro-Russian. It's bad news. Uh, anyway, in 2012, this oligarch dude won this election in Georgia against Saakashvili's party. So for the last year of his presidency, he was sort of cohabitating with this mm. yucky faux pro-European party, which now is very openly not so pro-European. But um, but so there had been this, there were these two sides of this. The fact that no one talked about the war because it was inconvenient to talk about it. So it was like it never happened. And then the story of the Saakashvili success, that there had been this pro-European, pro-Western uh, popular uprising in Georgia that had taken control of the country, that had done all these things to fix the country, to reform the country, to give it a real economy. At the time of uh, the Georgian War, I think it had something crazy like 8% growth. I mean, just like, wow. it was like a real country that was yeah. heading in the right direction. Um, so undoing that story by having this Russian yeah. oligarch attack that story and saying, no, it was the bloody nine years. You have no idea how bad these people really were. They're terrible human rights violators and blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. That was the other side, which is a whole separate yeah. course I can teach. Yeah, but right, the yeah. political warfare side in Georgia is a whole separate thing. But yeah. so undoing these two stories of the war and of Georgian success was how we got to 2014 got it. with no attention being paid to what was happening or what could happen or the potential of Russia to do this thing again. Yeah. Despite the fact that Putin had started telling people like Saakashvili, like the Moldovans, uh, like others in like 2009 – that Crimea was really important and he was going to take it back. And everybody's like, no, no, you're not. And he's like, no, I mean, I'm going to take it back. <laughs> like, they were very open about this. So I think this is, again, this, it is very hard to deal with a large, economically weak, nuclear-armed adversary slash whatever we're calling it at the time, uh, com com competitive nation, you know, whatever near peer competitor, profoundly um, cynical. It's a, it, it's, yeah. it's really hard to look at it when they do something bad and think, well, shit, what are the tools where we can actually right. do something useful here when you don't want to do anything useful? Cause it's hard and yeah. uncomfortable and disruptive. Yeah. Um, but there was no will to do it, uh, until you get to Crimea, until you get to yeah. the invasion of Eastern Ukraine, where suddenly it was like, oh, fuck, like oh, we've enabled this whole we environment. Were, we were played. And um, then still. Do you think part of, do you think the, the sort of shame of that actually was part of the political uh, calculation? To Nobody wants anything. to be the Anybody one who's wants like. To admit that actually we contributed to this environment? Totally. That we, Nobody yeah. wants to be the one who's like, I enabled this. Yeah. Nobody wants to admit this. They, oh, we didn't know it changed. Like, oh, it was Putin coming back into power. Like, yeah, whatever. No, it wasn't. Um, and just this, again, the lack of direction about how we were going to deal with this. Like in all this time, we weren't being smarter about how we were building defensive in NATO. Like we weren't preparing our political toolkit in terms of influence and what we could do. Um, we hadn't really been focused on sanctions or other sort of deterrent methods, but repeatedly from 2007, when... Russia attacked Estonia and made it clear that like a different Russia was coming until now we have failed to understand what deterrence is and to actually deter Russia. And there's been this strange clunky narrative since February, 2022 in the reinvasion of Ukraine 
Um, yeah, which brings us to today. <laughs> which and like, to today. what's different now? Back to Keith's question, yes, which closes with... and we'll with... get there. <laughs> but there's been this strange clunky narrative since then about like, well, NATO deterrence worked because he didn't invade us, but we failed on Ukraine. Yeah. And like, no, that's not deterrence. Like if you fail to deter the behavior of the thing because it does not view you as a threat, there is no deterrence. And I think we can understand, in fact... We have no deterrent value against Russia in terms of its behavior and what it views as strategic decisions it's making on its own behalf. And we just need to revamp that whole calculus of how we're doing these things. Um, we have many capable, smart allies that have been trying to help us in this regard, uh, including now the Ukrainians, and we have been reluctant to embrace or learn those lessons. Um, but we're putting ourselves in the position of having to do everything a stupider and harder and more expensive way that will likely be more costly to us in the future over and over again. And if we think that we're going to be able to do China when we haven't been able to do Russia... Well, we like, should say that part of the reason, and you've done this so well, and I've referenced it so many times <laughs> on the podcast, but part of that reason is political and, as you call it, this pincer... Uh, of isolationist tendencies on both the far right and the far left. So part of the reason that we've been, uh, that our response has been, let's say, lackluster so many times has a lot to do with domestic politics, which is a part of the reason that we're having this conversation that I think it's important for listeners to understand so that they can explain to their social circles just why all of this shit matters because the political pressure is not a negligible piece of the calculation. And um, yeah. And it so, costs lives. And it and costs so lives. After 2014, again, we were in sort of this, we'll sort of support Ukraine. Here's some economic relief. You know, here's some small training. Here's some things. But the vast, and I, I am not downplaying the work that, American trainers in Ukraine played in helping to train Ukrainian forces in that in that time period between 2014-2022. I'm not downplaying the role of any other NATO nation that was there helping Ukraine, participating in what they could. But all of this was like way back by Lviv, you know, like as far from the conflict as possible. And like we just kind of need to own that there was this six-year period where we could have done things that would have prevented 2022 from happening. But again, much like Georgia, we didn't do them for fear of, quote, provoking Russia. So we weren't arming the Ukrainians in a serious way. They kind of had to do all that work themselves. Uh, the war in eastern Ukraine, particularly in those first years, um, uh, in, in 2014, 2015, 2016, grinding lots of casualties, lots of Ukrainian casualties, um, Everything they had to do was harder and cost more lives because of not having the equipment they needed. And at the time, because Yanukovych had destroyed the army and left them with, you know, nothing. So they were starting from absolute scratch um, in 2014. But like in all of this period, we could have been more serious about building a deterrent factor for Ukraine by integrating it into NATO, for example, or by helping it build real air defense, or by giving it the capability to really inflict damage on uh, Russian forces that were targeting them. Um, but we didn't. Like we kept, we continually made the decision to make it 
just a little less bad <laughs> for Ukraine and focus on things like anti-corruption and building mm. the government and whatever else, as if any country can have any of these things without yeah. having security, security within its borders. Yeah. I mean, just it's nonsense. But like there were so many well-meaning Americans, Brits, French, Germans, whatever within the system who were so focused on helping Ukrainian political reform while absolutely standing against arming Ukraine. Yeah. The same diplomats that would argue for budgets for anti-corruption work would be like, absolutely not. I'm not, you know, we should not arm Ukraine. Everything we're going to do here is going to provoke the Russians. Well, fuck that. Like, all you did was make a bigger target. And Russia was like, why not? And, I, you know, people are still like, this is so crazy. Why did Russia do it? And oh. it's the answer is strategically, it's really strategically valuable it's for them. Valuable. Yeah. And I just, there's still this miscalculation of how we're interpreting Russia will, Russian will, Russian intent, and what they're getting out of it. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying Putin is making totally rational calculations right. in this particular time period, but for him it is. And I think that's the thing that we need to understand. And we're still not adapting... Like the number one thing we need to be focused on is deterrent capability or what the fuck is the point? What is the point? Like, yeah. do we really want to have to fight Russia yeah. in our own territory? Because I don't want to do it. Yeah. Like, we know it's going to be fucking yeah. horrible and bad and gr like, we know what it looks like now. Yeah. Let's not do it in our territory. Let's yeah. fucking kill those motherfuckers in Ukraine so we yeah. can stop doing this. Yeah. And we're still not focused on that. And the Ukrainians are paying the price every day. So to land the plane, what has changed now is, uh, I think, something we've spent a lot of time yeah. on. Um, but, to, but to encapsulate it, um, do, do you think we have thoroughly learned our lesson? Or is there something else going on here that's driving uh, interest? I think in there is now more discomfort with living inside the delusion of engagement with Russia than there previously was. And the, the piece I was mentioning in Politico that was this weekend that is worth understanding in this context is... Also, I think it's probably, we shouldn't discount the fact that through this trajectory, we started with 2008, now we're up to today, what's different now? One thing that is wildly different than in 2008 and in 2014 is the, is the immediacy uh, of the news cycle and, yes. the, and and the ubiquity of information. So well, that, and at the so beginning, like, that's one thing. And at the beginning of February, 2022, the extremely powerful online information machine that the Ukrainians were able to enact, which yeah. may not even work that way now. Cause thank you, Elon Musk, but, um, mm. which is interesting in so many ways. Yeah. But so for the like, example, after 2014, we had all these sanctions against Ukraine, against Russians and Russian oligarchs and Russian businesses, whatever in various phases and waves, in response to different waves of aggression against Ukraine and other things. Um, but basically they weren't enforced. And that was what this piece in Politico was about. It was like, what's different between 2014 and 2022 is like, now we're actually enforcing things a little bit. And, oh, that's bad for their economy. And the fact that we never bothered to do it before because there just wasn't priority. But it's, yeah. It is hard. It yeah. is extremely hard to go after these things when it's like, you know, layers and layers of shell companies and, and showing who is owners. But like, it's the best it's one of the best tools we have that people are actually willing to use, right. which is these now commonly agreed sanctions and sort of the unity behind the sanctions and the willingness to, to, to do the work to enforce them is a big difference on the sanction side. But I think really the big difference is after 2008, after 2014, everybody just sort of put their, 
but it's so hard. And like, mm. I'm getting things from Russia coat back on and hoped that they weren't going to have to do anything else. And, you know, the Germans kept building Nord Stream 2 and everybody kept negotiating deals. And like, we kind of didn't do that much. And they were still coming here to visit and talk to us. And like, yeah, but then 2016 happened here. We had Russian interference in our own elections. We have, we have had aggression on our own. There is the understanding that what Russia does isn't just about its neighbors, but about all the rest of us too. And this whole period has Which is new since then. And I think most critically, as part of what you mentioned, has made how we talk about Russia in many Western societies a a public, domestic, political topic. And sometimes that is very hazardous and bad. In the U.S., it has created this strange polarization uh, about Russia that doesn't need to exist. Because everything is positional. Everything is positional now. But there is more public discussion about Russian political warfare and what that means and what it's done to Ukraine than there ever would have been before. So it made it near impossible for many places to ignore what was happening, but also just the scale of what Russia attempted to do. And frankly, the noise we made in advance, like here we are six months in advance, like Russia's going to invade Ukraine. They're going to blow the shit up. place. I remember, I remember (sighs) the conversation. Yeah. They've been lined up. They're lined up like waiting. Yeah. So disheartening. But, uh, we made all this noise about this thing and then we had to do something about the thing because it happened and the Russians didn't win. And then it was like, fuck, like now we have to do something about this. So now we're in this fuck, what do we do about it place? And we still haven't owned a a strategic goal. And that's the problem. And like, yes, I as a non-military commander with no military experience can obviously say this, but if you don't believe me, you can look at (laughs) other former commanders of US Army Europe and other former sackers and other things. And uh, like General Ben Hodges, Mark Hurtling, others um, who talk about the same thing, that our lack of specified spoken, what is our strategic goal yeah. and our support for Ukraine yeah. is hindering everything. Yeah. And we need to be clear. What are we afraid of? Why hasn't about that what happened? that thing is. Why hasn't the administration been <sighs> explicit about our goal? It's such a deep question. I do think there are some people. I do, I do also have a separate sort of uh, like. Congress has, is appropriating these funds, yep. and yet, and we're sort of fighting this proxy war with Russia and Ukraine. It's not a proxy and, war. Okay, okay. Don't call it that. Okay, uh, but like, but we, yes. we have absolutely circumvented the intended check and or balance of Congress declaring, you know, but military. bipartisan support, which is really bipartisan support. Really I agree. Yeah. Like, but both both sides have essentially abdicated this role of Congress because to declare when when matter. the U.S. Mm-hmm. is going to entangle itself in other, right. But anyway, this um, is a broader conversation that's a broader about conversation. congressional powers yes. that I agree needs yeah. to be had, but maybe but not with the current Congress. Correct. Which is like, eh. Correct. But anyway, <laughs> since we're doing it this way and we're yeah. just appropriating money and the administration is in charge, why hasn't the. And we have been these a, vague things, even more vague now than we used to say. The phrase that they seem to be locked on right now is until the end. Yeah. We will stand with Ukraine, not support Ukraine, not arm Ukraine. We will we'll stand, stand with Ukraine, Ukraine until the end. The right. end of what? The end of what? What the fuck are you talking about? Like, and like, what does is, what is success look like? And, what does victory look like? Well, but they won't and, use the word victory anymore, which is interesting. And um, it's bad. And it, I mean, look, some of the people making these decisions are not people I would want to be making these decisions on Russia, having seen how they do this in the past. And I don't think there's been this learning curve of the 2008-2014 stuff uh, as we have discussed briefly oh, here. I know they can, I know a podcast they can listen to. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> uh, and I think there's this... Uh, 
I think there are some people, and I, I'm not even necessarily sure who, who believe in this sort of self-made narrative of, oh, it's good for us that Russia is bogged down in Ukraine and the Ukrainians are slowly chewing them into bits and blah, 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 blah. Like, this is great. It's like, it's not great. Uh, it's great for China that like mm -hmm. NATO resources are sunk into this and Russia's busy and destroying itself. But yeah. for anybody else, like, um, but this, this idea that like somehow this is worse for Russia than the rest of us is not smart. Yeah. And also again, can we talk about the dead Ukrainians yeah. and what we're asking them to do every day without the right stuff? They still don't have individual weapons and body armor. Like it's fucking insane. And like, it is amazing that Ukrainians can crowdfund drones and drop grenades from like little pieces of toy shit that they've brought in from Poland and yeah. blow up Russians. Or that Politikaji supporters can help crowdfund winter coats for the soldiers <laughs> that, that you literally <laughs> hand, delivered hand delivered to them, but that also shouldn't have had to be done no, in the first place. Like, I'm glad to do it. I'll do whatever I can. Everybody who else who's in the, yeah. I mean, all of the Balts who are driving constant yeah. streams of trucks to Ukrainian soldiers feel the same. Like, we'll do it if we have to. But why the fuck do we why have to do, we do have it? To do this? Right. I mean, it's madness yeah. that we've like that we've created this dynamic of a crowdsourced war yeah. where it's kind of great because now so many people feel directly invested in That's this, true. Yeah. which politically in all of our countries has this enormous impact, which is not small yeah um and i think that that's important but like madness like yeah. what state wants to abdicate the ability to wage war to right. fucking people on twitter no offense yeah. to all of us on twitter but like <laughs> it's madness yeah. like so it just it's very frustrating that the lack of strategic goals has left all these gaps the ukrainians are filling them how they can they're not unaware of what we are asking of them it's just that they understand they would have to do it anyway. Like, even if we weren't giving them anything, they would get the sticks and rocks and kill the Russians with their hands if they had to. Um, but they're not unaware that the way we're asking them to do it is the hardest way with the most casualties, with the most damage to the largest area of their country. Um, and if you spend any time on any social media, you see the parts of Ukraine, like Bakhmut, like other cities, that now look like Idlib, that now look like Grozny did. This is how the Russians fight wars. They fucking kill everybody and blow everything up and sort the rest out later. And I think there's been, um, there was a good report written recently. I can send the link and you, if you want to link it, but about the political warfare aspects of what's been happening in Ukraine during this newest phase of the fighting. Um, and what it has pu made public, which is something we've all been discussing, but it's not really a public thing. So now that it's in public, it's good. Uh, is like, yes, the war is like the Russian war effort is as inept as has been discussed. Like, <laughs> this is not a sophisticated modern army with with slick targeting and decentralization. It is clunky and not great. But the administration of the occupation is quite sharp. And um, the cost to civilian populations, because the Russian intelligence services run the occupation, not the army. So the cost to civilian populations of being in occupied zones, uh, the damage to the economy, the damage to society, the damage to individuals and people, the number of people who have been summarily executed, tortured, deported into Russia, the thousands yeah. and thousands and thousands of children who have been stolen from their parents and sent into Russia, 
all of this is... To who knows where in Russia, right? I mean, they just... It's all fucking crazy. The whole thing is fucking crazy. And for this, Putin has finally been indicted um, by the International Criminal Court because it's kind of the lowest hanging fruit. Like, stealing children and forcibly adopting them into Russian families is obviously not You can't spin your way out of that. It's... So, I mean, I think there'll be more, but this is a good first indictment of Putin. But... All of these things are horrible and monstrous, and the administration of the occupation is as Soviet and terrible as you can imagine. And the cost to people is devastating. And whether you get out alive, uh, as a recent report of some girls who were taken to one of these re-education camps and managed to sort of escape with the help of some journalists. Um, And they were like, initially willing participants because they dupe you into believing, mm. oh, we're just going to the camp, you know? And they're like teenagers who Do want some normalcy. Um, I don't know. I, the report I'd love was, to talk to the journalists then. The report was done by OCCRP, okay. which is mostly like an anti-corruption thing, but what, some of their people helped because these girls managed to keep their phones. They were still occasionally wow. posting things on social media, wow. right? So these journalists sort of found them and figured out a way to help them about risky. get back to yeah. uh, Ukraine. But um, just listening to the way they talk about it as teenage girls who just want, like, a chance to go to the beach when everything is shit. And them slowly coming to the realization of how they've been manipulated and used and how awful everything is and, like, the cost of all of this to their country. Like, on every level, there is not a single Ukrainian family that has not been disrupted, affected. Yeah made to pay directly for this conflict. And I I honestly don't know how people can sleep at night continuing to make decisions where that calculus is okay. Like, yes, they are fighting for the future of their own country and they are going to do that and are happy to do it, are willing to do it. There is absolutely no change in the political will of Ukrainians in this whole last year plus of what has happened. No weakening of resolve. Nothing has changed for them. Um, But why are we making them do it the worst, most costly way for their nation when we understand Putin's goal is to erode the Ukrainian nation? And now the Ukrainian nation is split and divided and being mindfucked into becoming Russian children and being like absolutely fucking carpet bombed into oblivion. And we're just like, well, that makes sense. Like, no, it doesn't make any, we're giving what he wants. And I just think we need to be clear about what is our that we need to win, that Ukraine goal. needs to win, that it yeah. needs to take its full territory back under its own control to make decisions about its future, and that that may not look like what we think it looks like, and we need to give them the capability to make those strategic decisions of how the actual fighting happens yeah. on their own. And stop. Stop fucking it up. Like, here we are 14 months into this most recent phase of the thing, and we still aren't making enough munitions. Like, we knew. We had to know. Like, I'm not a war planner. And my question in March last year was, have we told them to make more of the things? things? And the answer was, Oh, I don't know. Let me check. And we haven't. (laughs) And like, we're just starting to do it. And like the Estonians are doing some good stuff to build up the European production side. Like there's these new joint initiatives to try to make and procure munitions. But why are we so slow? And why didn't we decide to do this sooner? And why do we make it cost so fucking well, bloody much? Maybe one part of that answer has to do with the fact that DOD can't pass an audit. But anyway. <laughs> but it's not about that. But not being not being able to pass an audit should give them more flexibility <laughs> of no, no. dispersing no, funds no. as they see she, fit. She just said, well, 
we can't pull up an inventory and tell you where things are. I know. So that's not great, Bob. <laughs> it's no, I mean the whole, I mean, and there was a former soldier who's now a journalist. I can't remember who it was, but put up exactly the right analogy of that very terrible John Stewart interview We're with talking the about deputy the secretary of yeah. defense. But, um, uh, it was really sort of painful. Like, don't, don't go on John Stewart. Yeah. Don't talk to John Stewart if you don't know what you're going to say. You but yeah. the, uh, uh, the soldier analogy was if you're on base, like if you're assigned to a base and like one thing goes missing, a grenade, you know, cause sometimes people try to steal stuff as like trophies, like Ugh. a gun. Ugh. Like if one thing is discovered missing from the base inventory, there's like a lockdown. They overturn everybody's like until they find that thing. It's like a major investigation, but somehow like DOD doesn't have a master inventory sheet of like, yeah. where are our tanks? I don't know. Did we leave them in Texas? Like, <laughs> it could be anywhere. Like what are you talking about right now? Like if Amazon can tell me exactly where my tube of lip balm is, you should be able to tell me where a warship is like what on earth are we talking about so anyway there are flaw internal flaws that we need to overcome you know you know how like when you're going through your closet you put on a jacket and you like accidentally find a hundred dollars in it like, like where did what? this come from whoa <laughs> how did i not know yeah exactly i i wish i was finding hundred dollar bills I mean, in maybe, my pockets maybe these the days. maybe the maybe the pentagon is having um similar anyway hey look <laughs> Well, so, to some extent, yes. It's like, hey, here's the shit we haven't used in 30, maybe the Ukrainian. And they're like, yes, we will take it. Just send it in the mothballs. We'll figure it out. Yeah. But um, where uh, the, the halfwayness of everything yeah. sucks for all of us. Yeah. It's bad for us. It's costing us more. It will take longer. It will take more things. It's bad for Ukrainians who are paying in blood and nation and identity and everything else. Um and like we're leaving these strategic questions open in a way that as much as we love to talk about our our unfounded so, you like never been so unified yeah. it is actually having corrosive effects within the alliance so would one thing people could do because i'd like to see some political pressure on this point yeah be to call your representatives call the white house and say what is our strategic objective in Ukraine? What is our strategic goal? I support the yes. effort. I support like Ukraine. And also, can you please articulate what our goal is and why? Yes. As much as I hate that it is still this way, kind of, yeah. the whole like calling slash writing Congress yeah. folk is a real thing. It is and a they real have thing. to answer you and account for your emails and calls it and is whatever. A real thing. So, as much as I also mostly resort to Twitter rage, uh, pointing those things in the right direction is important. And I think, again, there is a lot more bipartisan support for what yeah. we are doing in Ukraine than is broadly discussed because many Republicans are hiding and yeah. trying not to draw fire yeah. from the crazy lunatic wing. But the crazy lunatic wing, to be clear, one of the things, it is small, but one of the things that they will say is, we don't even know what we're doing there. Yeah. And that is which to is your point. Which is not incorrect. Yeah. Which is not incorrect. <laughs> which which is, is not incorrect. Well, we haven't articulated it. And so one of the ways to take the, that quiver of arrows away or is to articulate it. And stop undermining our own message where it's right. like, stand with Ukraine until the end. Oh, but also then we'll say, we've made the determination they don't need X for this phase of the fighting. No, 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 no. Uh. Either they're the ones fighting the war and we just need to listen to their assessment of what they need so they can execute the war or we're the ones fighting with them 
and with some skin in the game. And then we can say things like, no, you, you don't need this right, right now. But we can't have it both ways, yeah. which is what we've been trying to do. Yeah, and I know fair. there's this, again, it's driven by this cautious line of, we don't want to quote unquote provoke the Russians. Right. And the Russians have done a good job of playing up the nuclear yeah. threats. and the, uh, uh, yeah. It's not going to nuke anybody. But like this, we just, we fall into this don't provoke Russia. It's like, what more, what are we, what, what, what would we provoke? What are we fucking talking about right now? Like, yeah. how is it going to get any worse than <laughs> right. this? And the answer is for Ukraine, it can't. So we just need to stop living inside our self-excuse bubble. And do what we know needs to be done, which is hard and it requires real leadership. But the Biden administration doesn't get to sit here with its banners about the democracy summits if it's not going to do what is necessary in Ukraine. And uh, it's just that simple. And it's hard. Like, yeah, you know, it's hard. I'm not again. More has been done than I feared we would not do. But and I'm so grateful for all of that because it really could have been much worse had the Ukrainians not dragged us forward, kicking and screaming into this. And I think, but I think that's sort of in all these years of doing stuff in these places, you know, the message that I always sort of use is like, there's nobody coming. There's only us. Right. And, but that's the thing everywhere I've sort of come to realize is like in all the places where we've engaged and all the places where we've quote unquote promoted democracy, actually we didn't do anything except show up after the other people had done really hard work and join the parade. Like, Hey, Georgia, you overthrew yeah. your, you know, not great government. Like, woo, Ukraine, you know, like there's no democracy promotion. There's democracy aspiration from other countries yes. that we sometimes show up to support and sometimes not. And like, it's so fucking disheartening when you look at it that way, but it is absolutely the truth. And in this case, we need to follow through. If we do not get this right, it's the end of all the pretend and uh, in every aspect of the pretend. Yeah. It, you, it is not just Ukrainian territorial sovereignty that is on this on the table here. It's a... Uh, it's much bigger than that. It's the future of our alliance. Yeah. It's the future of the every other alliance. Western order. It's the rules. It's yeah. all the other things. And uh, you'll hear people kind of say this in semi-articulate ways without backing it with action uh, other than the Balts and the Poles uh, and the Finns and Swedes and a few others. Um, and we just need to get this one done. Like there's no alternative yeah. to getting it right. If we get it wrong, like we're not going to have another six years and then another thing. It's going to be a lot worse. So yeah. Sorry Let's for the very land. long answer, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk about it Keith, more, Keith, I've got you years worth you, of material. You got, you got more question. than you bargained for. Uh, also, there's a course available at Georgetown. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll do a podcast version. Who there you knows? go. <laughs> but other people can pay you by signing up at your newsletter. <laughs> yes, Greatpower.us. But yes. And uh, Ukraine just, it, the answer to all of the stuff, the leaks, the everything else is just give Ukraine what it needs to win. Period. End of story. And uh, that should be a, a political force in this country for people running give for them office. Give what they need. We expect give you to support this. And uh, it's that easy. It's not really that ex- it doesn't really cost us that much for everybody who's trying to wave their arms about it. Um, it's worth every penny uh, and it's saving Ukrainian lives. So let's just get that calculation better and get it done.
Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.